Howdy, partner, and welcome to Tom Hanks Giving, the most magical Tom Hanks podcast on the internet. I am your host, Elvis Kunish, and today we're talking about The Great Buck Howard, 2008's comedy drama slash indie film, according to Google, directed by Sean McGinley, uh, produced by Tom Hanks. Uh, he's got his whole Playtone fingers all over this, and starring his son, the wondrous Colin Hanks? Well, well, and John Malkovich, uh, to say the very least. Uh, we'll get more into that in a minute, but here, let me introduce my wonderful guest co-hosts this week. Elliot Campos, Samantha Garrison of the Superhero Sampler. Hello. Hi. Great. You guys, excellent introduction. <laughs> uh, of course, you've both been on the show before, but this is the first time together, so this is a supersized episode, and thank God I need you guys, because there's... I don't know what this is. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this movie. I feel like I can now call in a favor from you for having sat through this with you. I feel so guilty. I feel bad for the people <laughs> listening to this sh- If they watch the movie, or even if they just want to listen to this, we got to make sure this is a good episode to listen to, because this was a bad movie. I think it's kind of like the movie Prometheus, we're talking about it, and hating on it is more interesting than the movie itself. Yes, although I would rather watch Prometheus. Oh, really? Yeah, and I don't like Prometheus. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. I mean, the only thing this has got going for it is Hanks. I really love Colin Hanks, though. I, I have, uh, this from this movie, actually, before we get into that, I do want to talk about Colin, of course. Who wants to do summary? Just try and explain what this movie is. Elliot? Are you even recording? Yeah. Okay. Well, The Great Buck Howard is about a magician played by John Malkovich, the titular character, Great Buck Howard. This movie takes kind of a last King of Scotland approach, whereas the movie is about Idi Amin, the last King of Scotland, but our entryway into that world is the white guy, James McAvoy character. Mm -hmm. And with this movie, The Great Buck Howard, our entry is Colin Hanks, the squire of Tom Hanks. <laughs> the Hanks offspring, yes. Yes. The second in command of the Hanks household, mm-hmm. uh, masculine wise, of course, Rita Wilson rules over the household with an iron fist. She is the matriarch of the Hanks. She is the system. matriarch. So is Rita Collins' mom though? That I can't I'm looking speak this to. Up. I actually think she might not be. There is there is, is yeah, there is multiple kids between two different Hanks. Lady loves. It's a Lannister-esque uh, family tree. It's not Lannister-esque. <laughs> it's the most wholesome possible Lannister family tree. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, Rita is not his mom. No. Um, but I'm I, sure she's a grand influence in his life. Today is Mother's Day she as certainly, we're recording. I'm sure Colin gave Rita a call because she plays an important part in his life, even if it isn't the de facto mother. The de facto mother. Sure. And, and she produced this movie as well. Yeah, this was produced by Playtone, which is Tom Hanks's production company, mm-hmm. which uh, is named after the company in that thing you do, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we watched that thing you do during one of your Tom Hanks givings, and it pops up that Tom Hanks' character, Mr. White, works for Playtone. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, wow, that's like you're seeing everything come together. This felt like a, it felt in line with that <laughs> thing you do, this movie, because there's a parade of cameos. At a certain point, mm-hmm. and I feel like the the sh- kind of weird showbiz angle it takes is not 
completely alien to, and it has Steve Zahn in it as well. Steve Zahn's in a lot of Tom Hanks movies, though. We got you've got Mail. They've uh, got a deep relationship. There's yeah, he's he's a, sure. he's in the breadth. So uh, Colin Hanks plays a law school dropout, and while trying to figure out how to start his career as a writer of something, he <laughs> yeah. flips through a newspaper and finds an ad to be an assistant to the great Buck Howard, who is played by John Malkovich in his <laughs> most Malkovich-ness. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe the most Malkovich he's ever been. It's very Malkovich. You know, I was thinking watching this movie that Christoph Waltz has kind of usurped John Malkovich's place in Hollywood. Mm. Like, I just kept thinking about how so many of his mannerisms and everything, like, Christoph Waltz now brings that kind of energy to projects. Do you think Christoph Waltz in this movie would have made for a better movie? No. No. I I do think this is kind of peak Malkovich. Like the when he's singing the song to Sulu, What the World Needs Now. Yes. I mean it was funny, it wasn't good. <laughs> I think Malkovich has a certain degree of artifice to him because he's so pronounced in his delivery that he seems larger than life in a lot of his movies, and I think that helped with this one. That's for sure, yeah. There was the, uh, he's on a talk show or something, and before he even says anything, just the way he's sitting in his seat with his arm on the counter, <laughs> he gets a laugh. I think he did really well in this movie, and Christoph Waltz, I think, could have done it. His performance in Big Eyes is pretty similar, but honestly, I haven't seen Malkovich in something in a really long time. Has so, he unofficially retired, or is he just going around well, to, like, Bakersfield? Now he's making movies that we can't see for a hundred years. So he's just kind of robbing us of his presence. What does that mean? Wait, what? So he made a movie that isn't going to be screened until, like, 2115. So long after his death. Long after everyone's death. Wow, well, no, I'll yeah. be alive. I think I'll just go watch Red 2 again. Yeah. <laughs> or Red 1. Red 1 is great with the pig. Yeah. Yeah. As you can tell, we've strayed away from the summary We're multiple not, times. There's not a lot to talk I keep, about this movie. I keep derailing myself. So, so Colin well, Hanks goes to work for... He becomes his assistant, his road manager. Replacing Adam Scott. Who is great. And he... That's a wig, right? Uh, I'm going to say no. He had a very shaggy so. dude. I'm going for it, because when he was in Party Down, he was that shaggy looking, right? Yeah, he? and we've seen him... He no, kinda, I guess he had spiky hair. I'm he had the spiky of, hair. I'm thinking of Blondie. <laughs> This would have the either been... The poor guy party down had the really Yeah, he did. If this was like 2008, this would have been either right after he started on Parks and Rec or right before. Right? I think it was... It was probably before. I mean, here's the thing. With any movies like this, you can never be too sure when they're actually filmed because sometimes distribution takes a little longer. I wouldn't have distributed this movie. Yeah. Uh, do you guys even remember this movie coming out? No. I remember seeing I it on Netflix. I didn't hear about it until I was putting together a Tom Hanks B-list dude of the week for the last mm -hmm. time I was on your podcast. Yeah. And I was really stoked to find a movie that had Tom Hanks, Adam Scott, Colin Hanks, and Steve Zahn. Right, yeah. And Ricky Jay. And Ricky <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, so this summary, he goes to work. It, it goes exactly how you think. The guy's washed up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and... Colin at a certain point, Colin, Troy, Troy is his name, God, what a terrible name. Um, <laughs> There's been good Troys, Troy Barnes of Community. That's what I, but like, 
Yes, but that it requires Donald Glover level of charm to make it work. I you thought know? you were the one who was defending Colin Hanks in this podcast. I love Colin Hanks, but this is such a bad movie. So anyway, he, he's like, oh, I need to quit so I can become wait, a writer. Wait, 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 wait. Everybody dis... Nobody likes it. Did you like this movie? Kinda. Okay, that's, <laughs> I, I like that you did. I want to hear why. Because... But can we just talk for a minute about Please. Emily Blunt's insertion into this plot? Because yes. it's important. She, it's not important. That's the problem. She shows up as a publicist, and she's basically just there to say mean shit and then bone Troy. She comes in, and she feels... Uh, uh, my read on her was like, this is like someone's feature-length script in their screenwriting one class at film school, and yeah. they don't realize that... The female character, the female, it's literally, she comes here and she's like, oh, here's how you make your life better. She's like doing the exact, not Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but she's like, I'm just your Band-Aid girlfriend. Like, this is what you have to do. I have, she like likes him immediately upon meeting him and for no reason. I would make the gender flipped version of this romance in a movie someday though. It would be terrifying. Where a guy just comes in and is like, this is how you fix your life. I mean, I guess that was Trainwreck to a degree. Yeah, but I feel like Trainwreck had a little bit more self-awareness of what it was doing. There's a point in the movie where I, I turned to you guys and I was like, is this like a weird subtle satire? Yeah, because it starts off like kind of like that washed up act, like guy with the new assistant that's like wet behind the ears is always an interesting dynamic, but then it just takes a hard right into weirdness. Because mm-hmm. they're like, as soon as he's like, I want to be a writer, I, I was like, oh, it's one of those movies. Yeah, checking out. Um, but, you know, the inter- when those movies are good, they have this weird level of inside baseball. So I was like, that's where I was like, wait, is it kind of making fun of really bad stock character? Or at least yeah. it, it only really I'm, happened with the Emily Blunt character. Yeah, and I've definitely worked for someone that's like as washed, not quite as washed up, but is in that same level of delusion as the Malkovich character. So I could appreciate that. But then it just got so weird. And the cookbook. That was strange. <laughs> At one point, John Malkovich's character publishes a magic cookbook. And cookbooks take a long time to make. You have to test recipes and stuff. I mean... Like, that's a real thing. Like, there's a lot of R&D involved in a cookbook. It's possible he had it, the manuscript written, and it was just now is the time to publish that's it. That's true. That, but it was, it was really just there for I think it's more just, like, Martha everyone Stewart wanted to guy. hang out with Martha Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. Back, I guess that was before her big controversy, so it, that dates the thing. It this been is super dated. It. It's Regis saying Kelly, that's, you know? Yeah, it would have yeah. been after Martha Stewart, because she was in jail when I was in high school. Okay, well, she I guess she had a resurgence then, much like Malcolm. Well, yeah, yeah. Because uh, everyone thought she was, like, cool when she went to prison. That's true. I don't know how that works, but... <laughs> that's what Hillary Clinton needs to do. She needs to go to prison, and then she'll be cool, oh, and then people will vote for her. <laughs> Before we... T- I, I want to hear why you're, you're interested. You, you kind of like the movie. So, I thought a lot about that thing you do while right. we were watching this one. That thing you do is Tom Hanks really it was, depicting he, this kind of specific period of music, this kind of group that emerged in the 60s mm-hmm. of pop music that got kids excited and kind of charted their journey as they were traveling around the United States. And this movie is kind of similar in that it's following uh, an entertainer, specifically a magician in this case, as he travels across the United States. And it's showing that even though he's washed up and past his prime, he still has a degree of charm to him and a degree of corny, old-fashioned entertainment. And I think for, I don't know how involved Tom Hanks was in the script. He certainly wasn't involved in the acting that much. He had like two, two scenes. scenes. Well, two, two scenes, scenes in, a, in one photo, I guess. Yeah, which that was probably like a real picture of him yeah. and Colin growing up. So that's always cool when they can do that. So I think that what attracted Tom Hanks to this material was that 
old-fashioned entertainer that now nobody really cares about magicians. Like, you'll see a magician if you're already there having dinner. <laughs> you know, you don't make it appointment viewing. Yeah, you don't really go out to seek magicians. And like you were saying, the comparison to the thing you do, uh, it's another road movie. He probably likes mm-hmm. those. Mm-hmm. I like magicians. They're... <laughs> There, there was a. I love Penn and Teller. <laughs> oh, I like going to the Magic Castle and stuff when they make you like sit down and they make you part of the show and you get to like hold the handkerchief and you're like, oh my god, they just did this and I'm sitting here. I mean, when I used to, when I was a little boy, a small child, my parents would take me and my sisters to Pizza Hut like every Tuesday night and there would be a magician there who would like come to your table and do like balloon animal tricks. That's way cooler That's than That's amazing! Mine. I think it was a local talent who arranged some kind of deal with Pizza Hut. I don't think it was a an official Pizza Hut magician. Son of a bit. Oh my That's Pizza awesome Hut. Though. Oh my Pizza Hut has lion tamer in some way. But that kind of that kind of spark in this movie there's a running thread about this trademark magic trick that he has where he's able to find people find his fee for performing somewhere in the crowd yeah they they hide his his money within the crowd and he's got to be able to find it and he goes in the back room it's a whole thing and he's he's done it like a million times mm-hmm. and there's failed. kind of a debate about how he does it whether mm-hmm. he has an earpiece or a colleague and the movie keeps it ambiguous for a lot of the way and i kind of like that how it was leaving this element of wonder to all of this this guy who's doing these humongous, ridiculous handshakes, and he uses the same canned catchphrases like, I love this town, and isn't that wild? <laughs> like, all this stale as mothballs shtick. Yeah. But he has, like, one thing that's special, and there's never really a well, crystal clear answer. Well, that's yeah. what was so weird about it, is they make it seem like this one trick is so impressive, but I don't know about you guys, like, I always find hypnotists really impressive, because, mm-hmm. like, it's... I don't know. It's hard to get people to do that. Yeah, and obviously, like, the way hypnotism actually works, and who knows if that's how they're portraying it in the film here, but it's like you get people who are susceptible and they they want to do it. They're choosing to do the things you're telling them to do. It's really hard. Like, even when you want to do it, though, it's really hard to be hypnotized. Yeah. Have you ever had someone... I've never been actually hypnotized. Well, I've never had it. I mean, maybe I have. I've never had it done successfully. I've been in thrall. Uh, great. Um, no, but, but I've never been personally hypnotized. Uh, that is unfortunately not one of my experiences. But but no, as I understand it, though, you are in control still. Yeah, but like some, it's it's like really hard to. Oh, but to get to someone to that place. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Like I. So, like, I what like, I, there was a hypnotist at something in my high school, and I was up on stage, and I was, like, all for it. It sounded really fun to mm-hmm. do, you know, but it just didn't, I mean, it might not have been a very good hypnotist. We don't have just, like, magic people at my pizza huts where I'm from. Right. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so I don't know. But it's just interesting, because I feel like he was actually really good at what he did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, both of you are right in the yeah. sense that, like, Malkovich's character, uh, Buck Howard, was... He was great at that level of showmanship. Yeah. He pulled off all the things he I did on stage. I think part of it, too, is just that, like, unwillingness to evolve on his part. Like, there is an interesting germ of an idea with his character, and they just went the wrong direction with it. What? I don't know. Yeah, there's there's interesting ideas here, but none of them, none of them are really filled out for me. Uh, this is the whole, like, it feels like the movies start talking about 
you know, when you're young and it's like, you have the opportunity to chase what you want to do, to figure out what your life is about. You don't have to, uh, you know, be Which the boring movie- adult. And I, I, I appreciate that as someone who's running a Tom okay. Hanks podcast, yeah. but like, I've never seen a movie that's been a bigger argument for, like, stop chasing your dreams and just get a fucking job. Talk about dating the movie, too. Like, it it came out in 2008, so this would have been... Let's see, I came out to L.A. in 2009 when the industry was in the middle of a hiring freeze. (laughs) And you're like, oh, they shot this in 07 before everything went to shit. And I was like, no one would make a Chase Your Dreams movie after 2008, not to this degree, where it's like that. And, and law school was still a viable yeah, option. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, and it's it's so naive. Like, because yeah, you yeah. get those things still, but, like, it's the texture of the movie. It's so wholesome in a weird way. Yeah, and, like, really just, like, completely not in line with This movie feels like it's all. it's older than it should. Like, it's, it feels like it should be older with yes. the way the female character, the girlfriend character, essentially falls in love with him so easy and is just about, oh, we got to put you on your right path. Yeah. And the, the, yeah, the politics of the whole chasing your dream, it feels like it's a much older movie. Yeah. That's weird. Uh, but, but okay. So you talked about Elliot, go back to you. You talked about a lot of things, but what, what latch, what did you latch onto? Was it just Buck Howard's charm or? Well, what you guys are saying in- <laughs> while we were watching it, that you felt like this was dragging on forever. And it certainly did in that there wasn't really any narrative signposts or anything. Like, we didn't know what any of this was leading to. And it felt like because part of it is that John Malkovich's stick is so tried and true and done a million times, we see him doing the same things over and Mm -hmm. over and over. So it kind of makes its points pretty early and then doesn't have a lot new to say. Yes. For me, I think Malkovich was very entertaining. I feel like Colin Hanks is... I don't mind Colin Hanks. I think he's a good person. But (laughs) (laughs) I think that a lot of the things I've seen him in are just kind of bland roles. You know what I mean? Milk toast in a way that. Okay, that that's actually an interesting point of comparison because let's talk about Colin. But actually, I want to start the Colin conversation with: if this movie starred a younger Tom Hanks, would the role have had more life to it? Is that just something you could do with Tom Hanks? Because that's kind of what I talked about last week on the Da Vinci Code. Is like Robert Langdon's a pretty hollow character, but you throw in Tom Hanks, and it's like, oh, I get. An idea. So he kind of fills in the, a little bit of the gaps. Tom Hanks has charisma. Colin Hanks in this movie, I didn't feel that. I think Colin Hanks is a good actor. I've seen him on Mad Men and Dexter, and he was in uh, Orange County and King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, you know, he's definitely paid his dues, uh, Band of Brothers, he was in that. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who you can put in a movie or cast in a TV show, and he's going to do a good, respectable job. But, you know, comparing him to Tom Hanks, which is something that he's going to face his entire career. Unfortunately. Sorry to do this to you, just, buddy. He just, he's clearly the son of Tom Hanks by looking at him. It's just that his father, if you cast Tom Hanks in a movie with a dog, you're going to get something. Oh my if God. you cast Tom Hanks in a movie with a dog, like, 
the dog's going to get top billing over Colin <laughs> It's got to be a goddamn good performing I dog. have to step in. I Please. have to step in here and defend poor Colin because neither of you have watched Fargo, right? His I son. have not seen Fargo Okay, yet. shut your mouths. Sit down. <laughs> Tom Hanks could not do the work that he did in Fargo. I'm calling it Whoa. right now. I could, he could not because uh, there was a... If we ever do a Fargo spinoff, you're obviously... Oh my God, come on. please. I like his, I love that show so much. And the second season was, was brilliant, but he was so good in the first season. And just like, I think it was a chance for him to do something completely different. Because he is, I mean, he's like this incompetent single father detective. Okay. Not incompetent, but he's not as good at his job as you want him to be. He's getting uh, over, like, he's happily outmatched by this woman that he falls in love with, right? Okay. And, um, and it's just so, like, that's the thing. He's happy to be outmatched. And I think in this story, he needed to be, a, like, in this particular, like, in The Great Buck Howard, he needed to be someone who's not willing to be outmatched. Like, he's a supporting player, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, he probably couldn't carry a movie, which is why this maybe didn't work so well. I think I think it's, that like, the difference is that, like, whereas Tom Hanks has that, like, leading man quality, not everyone has to have that leading man quality to be, like, a unique or special. Right. Actor, and I, I don't like, mean to take anything away from Con. Like, I, I, I haven't seen enough of his like, work. Yeah. Judging him from this movie, though. Oh, well, this is, like, so, like judging anyone from this movie, if I would seen this back in 2008 and my only experience with Emily Blunt was, like, the Devil Wears Prada in this, I'd be like, uh, go back to England. <laughs> like... She's she's awful. <laughs> Do you think now now just to kind of play in the the Fargo thing a little bit longer, is it a disservice to Colin Hanks's uh, skill to cast him in a Tom Hanks like role? Is that maybe what happened here? I think here? that's the problem. Yeah, because you assume like they have a similar face, so they're going to be a similar type of actor, which is really wrong. You mm-hmm. know, it's like um, or it's like in Les Mis, like Russell Crowe is a really good actor. But then Tom Hooper shoots him close up this whole time, and he's, like, a really physical actor. And it's, like, he looks like shit. And it's, like, no, he's, he's a fine actor. This is just a terrible film for him. <laughs> like, I think that's what happened with Colin Hanks in this movie. That's what, I mean, but there was... There, there are a few actors that could have made this movie work. Like, Malkovich did great because Ma- yeah. John Malkovich. Is Malkovich... Who's the main character in this movie? It's... Well, you have technically it's probably Colin Hanks' Troy, character because yeah. we start and end with him. This is kind of his journey, what, what is, but he drops way out. Like yeah. there was one point where, like, the camera zoomed in on him and he started narrating, and it's like, oh yeah, Colin Hanks is in this movie. Yeah, just because when John Malkovich is on screen, the movie shifts to him, mm-hmm. and that's what I was talking about with the Last King of Scotland. You know, James McAvoy didn't win the Oscar for Last King of Scotland. No. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker did. But James McAvoy is the character who is the audience identification guy who kind of takes us on this journey. What do you guys think of the audience identification character? Do, is it something... Obviously, it does work sometimes, but doesn't it feel a little superfluous? Why isn't this Malkovich's story? Like, I always wonder that when we have movies like that. Why isn't the, the, the showcase character the actual protagonist? Lazy writing, I think. Because that, that's what it feels like in the bad side. It's always like, oh, we need some identifiable white guy to be yeah. to tell this story. I think the way to, like, and I think, too, putting your audience identification character front and center is always a bad idea. Like, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pull a better example that's more germane to this discussion. But, like, in the first Lord of the Rings movie, the audience identification character is Sam Gamgee. But he's not, he's far and away not the main character of that movie, but he's the one through which we get to view the world. Mm-hmm. Like, because Gandalf explains things to him so that we know them. And I think that's the way, of, like, that's the good way of doing it. 
But putting that guy at the front and center of this world is a terrible idea. Like, if this had been a movie about just the time in Cincinnati, and Steve Zahn had kind of been the dum-dum that was tasked with learning this world, I think that would have been a really entertaining, better version of this. I, I do gotta say, just a shout-out to Steve Zahn, his portrayal of, like, slightly doofy, like, middle America fanaticism is great. Yeah. Slightly? I, I didn't want to be cruel. <laughs> it's all intentional, his performance, and he's very entertaining. Yeah, he's great in this. Um, he makes that really sloggy middle part of that movie, I think. Yeah. I think what I would say in terms of the audience identification character is that the movie ultimately doesn't really three-dimensionalize the Buck Howard character. We know that he is a ham on stage. Off stage, he's kind of a prick who is that typical showbiz diva. Mm-hmm. Nothing's ever right. There's one bit where he tells Colin Hanks to tip the bellboy more, and then the next day he's like, tip him less. It's so very, you can never satisfy him. It's very cliche. Yeah. It, it is pretty You like it because it's Malkovich order. and he's decent. But. I think Malkovich is really making the part come alive because he has that kind of charisma. Yeah. yeah. And especially him as... A very fastidious, nitpicky asshole. That is right up Malkovich's alley. He can do that to a T. There was a movie that came out a couple years ago called The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. Did either of you see that? I didn't see it, but the Steve Carell picture, right? Yeah, Steve Carell and uh, Steve Buscemi, Olivia Wilde, and Jim Carrey. And that's a movie about magicians who are past their prime. And that one actually focuses on the magicians. So I think that movie is a lot better just... I think it handles this subject matter with a lot more heart and humor and Mm -hmm. entertainment value. This one is very much, I think you two have talked about the level of screenwriting on display, that it's kind of screenwriting 101 in certain aspects with certain plot developments. Uh, You described it as lazy writing. Yeah. I think that it is definitely not... It's not breaking any new ground, really. They have certain areas that interest them, and they explore them uh, to a degree. Like, they cast Ricky Jay as his publicist. Because Colin Hanks is the road manager, so who is Ricky Jay? I thought he was his agent. His agent? Okay. Because he's the one who gets him the books books of shows, essentially. His agent. Ricky Jay, uh, as many of you may know, is actually a magician in real life. And he's been featured in uh, Boogie Nights as the editor and in Mystery Men. He is Greg Kinnear's agent. Uh, he played a magician on an episode of The X-Files as well. He's Every time he pops up, he's, he's always entertaining just because he has this very specific delivery and deadpan expression. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think he could play Hamlet necessarily, but he just <laughs> has... When he's utilized correctly, which many directors are able to do, he just gets a laugh just by his underwhelmed reaction to things. <laughs> and I feel like... Putting him in this movie, you know, somebody who's actually a talented magician in real life, it Mm -hmm. shows that they are actually... I mean, he was probably giving them, like, notes on John Malkovich's performance, Yeah, you know? So I don't think this was just something that was crapped out, so to speak. No, no, and and two caveats. One, when it's hard to, to criticize... Well, anybody's work in a movie, because obviously even the worst movie ever took a lot of work to make. And two, screenwriting specifically, what you see 
on the page doesn't necessarily translate to what you see on the screen. So in this case, the writer was the director. Was the director? So it's a and little. And he hasn't done any. He hasn't done any writing since this. Yeah. The second caveat is that uh, I think you're right that this was, this was obviously a, a passion project for someone. They really, because uh, this is kind of based on a true person, uh, the amazing Crush. Kreskin. Kreskin. The amazing Kreskin, and uh, it seemed like. There was a story here to tell that someone wanted to tell. I'm sure Tom Hanks grew up watching that guy mm-hmm. on The Tonight Show. Uh, maybe the same with the writer and director. Probably. But it's something where they know this guy. They want to know what happened to him. And they told the story using the Troy character as their audience identification character mm-hmm. of, like, man, what would he be like? They're not thinking, what's it like to be him? Like, yeah, what, what would it like be to like hang out with him? Yeah, yeah, to see him, like, on stage. What did you think of the whole journey where it's, like, the first time... Because it seemed like it, the movie takes forever to end, and there's, like, nine times you think it's going to end. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that speaks to your point where it doesn't really have a established what is the conflict here, what are we building to, which is why we don't know when it feels like it's going to end, or it feels like it's going to end multiple times. But the actual ending, he's the audience member. Uh, our, our Troy uh, is the audience is in the audience for the first time watching uh, Buck Howard's actual show. And it seemed like he was trying to make a lot of significance about that, but I didn't get what was different. Did yeah. you guys pick up anything? Well, he kind of narrates a little explanation. There's a lot of tell-don't-show in this movie. About yeah. seeing the signature trick in action for the first time, and it looks like John Malkovich is not able to find his money. But that so happened he, already. Yeah, That's but it's ha- like he, he recorded his voiceover too soon yeah. before he actually I saw what like, happened. I feel like, too, if you had just been able to watch that scene without the voiceover, you would have recognized the significance. Like, oh, this is his first time in the audience. Yeah. And you get real stressed when you think he's not going to do it. Like, that would have been a tense moment, but instead he's just talking, talking over the over whole it. thing. And and honestly, that, that might have... I mean, it would have been good, but it would have certainly helped because... He that's the only part of the show he's always watching. So it's not like he's not paying attention when this happens, but maybe he, he, if he at least, yeah, didn't have the voiceover because he has it almost every other time. Yeah. Uh, and it's like we've already seen John Malkovich screw up that last trick. Yeah, so yeah. what so the it's fuck? it's not like a big deal to see him do it again. But then he doesn't screw up. Yeah, so... Some, is he magic? Is this... Let, let's just get a cut to it. Is the... Any possibility that in this movie that he actually has magic powers? I no. like the ambiguity of it. I think this right. is right, and I of, think that's uh, kind of what they're like. Do you believe in magic? It's more about the believing, and I get that. But like, I think he's got a Geiger counter, and he wraps the money in a radioactive band. Wouldn't you hear the Occam's razor? <laughs> yep, that's it. Shh, I don't care about sound, Elvis. The voiceover <laughs> distracted me. And it distracted everybody yeah. else too. I mean, voiceover typically is a hallmark of. Poor screenwriting yeah. because you have to actually tell the audience everything instead of just showing it. And it can be great, but no, I think this, yeah. is, this is a particularly bad example. What's really frustrating is that they never answered the central question is he gay? <laughs> this was like, that's another thing that makes, makes this movie feel a lot older, too. Like, that feels like a 90s joke. <laughs> what? Is he gay? Like that came up what three times, right? At least yeah, three times. Yeah. I mean, I would have I would have loved if there was a central question. I guess the central question is well there's like what three possibilities is it how does he do the magic th- trick uh or like is it 
what do you want to do with your life? Is it right? I don't know. What's going on in this movie, you guys? Yeah, with Colin Hanks, he drops out of law school, and then he tells us that he wants to be a writer, which is something we see a lot of job possibilities listed on the screen. The introduction, and, the introductory like sequence with the graphics, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but it's just like, it seems like he, like, oh yeah, I'll do a writer, because then I don't have to go to school or anything. I'll just do that. And so there isn't a lot of weight to that choice. And when he eventually lands a writer's assistant job, thanks to his marvelous British-American-ish girlfriend, it doesn't... Girlfriend for all of three days who had a boyfriend and fell in love with him, apparently? I guess. Yeah. Was, it, was she telling the truth about the boyfriend, or is that something she just made up? I we never see him. No, it, but I mean... Cause it's we weird. Re- she's like, I have a boyfriend, and then it's like she changes her mind. Like, cause it's a lie you would tell someone, right? To like not. I would tell someone I had a boyfriend if they wanted to make out with me. Yeah. We never saw John Krasinski in this film, <laughs> so it's unclear. It's unclear because Colin Hanks doesn't have a clear goal at all. That really saps some of the momentum from the story because for him, all he's doing is just drifting. And so yeah. the movie feels like it's drifting. Yeah. It certainly feels that way. Um, which, I mean, you compared it to That Thing You Do, which I know you were a little more colder on that. I did I like the movie. I know, I know. Uh, but I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, That Thing You Do. And that one, it's very similar in a lot of the ways, but it, it feels like they definitely have a goal, which I think leads that movie for most of the run with a, a much stronger propulsion to its narrative. Those, those... Those characters, the the wonders in that thing you do, they're young and hungry, as opposed to Buck Howard, who is old and desperate. And Colin Hanks, who is boring and aimless. Yeah. Yes. Talk about a guy who doesn't have a story to tell. Yeah. Of course he wants to be a writer. A writer. So well, let's talk about someone who has a story to tell. Let's talk about someone who could play Hamlet. Tom Hanks is in this movie. Yes. I think, I mean, I'm going to be biased, but I think he's the best part of the movie. The best scene is seeing him go toe-to-toe with Malkovich for that. That very brief scene. I I love that. That was great. This is him lending his acting talent so they can put his face on the poster, so they can sell a few tickets. You're not wrong at all. 100%. He is, one scene he's in the lobby. Yeah, they're in the lobby of the show. And the other scene he's sitting down. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> getting a lot of use out of comics. <laughs> he is. We're, I. Those are two scenes I remember. Did he have one more? I think the the, the lobby scene continues in. No. Do they have a, a dinner afterward? No. Okay, so it's just the lobby and the and the the Los Angeles dinner scene. Because the, the dinner scene. afterward is Colin Hanks waiting to tell Malkovich he's quitting. That's right. Yeah. No. It's yeah. just those two. Well, I like. Tom Hanks' character has an interesting perspective on things because he talks about how him and his wife struggled their whole lives to be able to build a life for their son so he wouldn't have to struggle. Very cliche. But but yet his son is choosing to struggle. But the problem is the son 
is choosing to struggle without any kind of goal at all. So it yeah. makes that yeah. because or he any had kind of visible st- struggle. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, he's, he's like I just desperate. beautiful British American women just yeah. fall into his lap for yeah. doing nothing. And he, he gets yeah. to travel the country. And and Malkovich was never comfort. as much. He makes like six hundred a week, so that's pretty good. Yeah, six fifty a week. Man. Yeah, he's doing pretty good. Um, and you know he's getting since he's traveling. You know he's not paying for his meals or groceries or anything. No. Yeah. Like, I want that life. Yeah, he's doing okay. And yet, you know, I feel like the father and the son, like, there could be a bigger gulf between them. It When the movie starts, it the, it frames the conflict of the movie between father and son. He's like, he leaves and he lies to his father. Well, the dad's a lawyer, right? And he wanted his son to be a lawyer, too. Was he a lawyer? Because he didn't he's get to definitely law rich. school. He's definitely rich. Right? The father said, I spent all this money on your education. I don't, like he, he I think have to be rich to do that. Okay, this he's, was before the economy collapsed. Remember, yeah, okay. everyone thought like I, I mean, were a viable thing to do with your time. He's certainly well. Aw, he didn't yeah. dress. He didn't dress. I mean, he did Lord buy his class. son. He did buy his son lunch at the W, which is a nice and. Right, I mean, so he's he's pretty well. I, I, rich is not the word I would use. I saw it as he wanted his son to be a lawyer because he's a lawyer. So Although, it's like following my footsteps. If you do, but he. Don't you have to go to law school to be a lawyer? He said he didn't have the opportunity to go to law school. So maybe he started in the mailroom. Can you do that as a lawyer? I don't know. Isn't that what uh, Jimmy McGill is doing on Better Call Saul? Do either of you watch that show? I don't. I mean, I don't think. I think if you're Jimmy McGill, you take liberties with what you can do as a lawyer. Anyway, yeah, but no, actually, I could now that you've uh, you've let it rattle around in my brain. I guess I could see it as. If he does come from a very wealthy parent, uh, parentage, and Tom Hanks is pretty rich, uh, or that his character is, um, then it's just a story about like my jerk off son who doesn't want to go to college or doesn't want to go to like that makes me even less like the movie and the character. Like Tom Hanks already comes in and he's acting like thousands of miles ahead of Colin Hanks in yes. the scene. And he has a real point of view and a real perspective and a real goal compared to a Colin. Like, I, I just don't... The kid feels like a whippersnapper and I totally hate him as soon as that happens. So that's I think that's why, like, against all odds, I'm almost, against, I'm almost in favor of the antagonism of the movie where it's like, don't follow your dreams. Just fucking get a job and do work. Right? It, there's a real trend in indie movies to be about 20-somethings who don't know what they want to do in their life. Because well, it's being written, written by 20-somethings exactly. have no idea. What, I mean, we've done those ourselves. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I deal with uh, a lot of student filmmakers. And, you know, movies like Into the Wild are touchstones, you know, about some kid who's like, you know what, I'm just going to forget all these strictures of life i'm just gonna go out into the woods and become a man you know that kind of stuff is really celebrated but at the end of the day you know you sit down to watch a movie i don't even know if this is in theaters or if it was just vod but if you you know take time out of your day to watch this movie put aside time you know hire a babysitter you know for uh, older audiences (laughs) and you decide to watch a movie and then it's about a guy who has no passion, has no desire, has no interests, really, that's frustrating. And Colin Hanks in this movie, his character Troy, is a very blank protagonist. Yeah. And so when you have someone like Malkovich, 
you know, he's a great actor, he's been around for decades, you know, elevated everything from Mice and Men to Con Air. Welcome talent. Uh, he was in a movie, it was uh, like Being Nicolas Cage or something. Yeah, that was it. Well, that was whatever exactly, it's called. Yes. That one. He's, he's a great talent. And when you have somebody like him, you want the protagonist to kind of match him in some way. Not, <laughs> yeah. not the showboating angle necessarily, but at least the Someone, interest. Yeah, who can go toe-to-toe. And Malkovich is just doing circles around almost yeah. everybody in the cast. Well, like That's you mentioned... The joy uh, of watching the aforementioned Red is like Bruce Willis is a completely different actor, but they both command a fair amount of presence mm-hmm. when they're on screen. Bruce Willis in Red has that kind of ass kicker, no nonsense, like yeah. wakes up without an alarm clock. You yeah. know, he's somebody who uh, demands your attention. Yeah. But with Colin Hanks, it's just like as in this movie. With yeah. Colin, not Fargo. Yeah. No. Uh, in this movie, it's basically just like Colin Hanks's performance, and it's the character as written. Colin Hanks's character is very much like. Uh, let me just hit the snooze on my alarm yeah. clock. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's not. There's no specificity to. He's like, I want right. to be a writer, and you're like, what? Is that that could mean anything. Like, yeah, yeah. And then when he gets handed the the writer's assistant job by the Emily Blunt character, it's just, it's a great job that thousands of people would kill to get. Yeah, and he just. <laughs> Lucks like, into it. I basically. know it's fictional, and I still wanted to murder him. Like, but right uh, there. but in a, in a horrible way. Don't you feel like that's probably accurate to real life? Like, some fucking idiot who doesn't have any goals or real drive is the one who gets handed the job you want. God, yeah. that's the pro- okay. That's part of the problem with this movie. That's not what the like, movie wants us to feel. No, no but that's what I get out of it. That's yeah. part of the problem with this movie. Is like all the shitty parts are so close to real life. Like people, like people, like John Malkovich, like. T- I, I talking had, shit to Adam Scott. And yeah, and just, like, not recognizing their own irrelevance or, mm-hmm. like, or or being aware and still ignoring it to treat people like shit, you know? Or, like, those listless, like, sad white boys that think because they have, they want to be happy. It's, like, like, that's the problem. Like, everything, everything that was honest about this movie is, like, stuff you, the reason you watch movies is to avoid <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, with the... the Everything incre- else felt artificial. Right. With the Incredible Burt Wonderstone movie, that's a movie that takes this Buck Howard character and kind of puts him in the, the driver's seat as the protagonist. Yeah. And there's... I don't think there's any narration in that movie, but I may be wrong. But it's something where we see him screw up, and it's hilarious. And we <laughs> see him try and climb his way back from the bottom, and you're kind of cheering him on. With this movie, you're not really inspired to cheer Buck Howard no, at all. No, I don't want him to be magical. No, you, I was happy to watch him fail. Yeah, you kind of want him to watch him fail, but then, like, Colin Hanks is, like, this weird, deep affection for the guy, and I guess he's not been bad, but... Well, the affection is from the writer and the director and the yeah. producer. And it's filtering in through him because he's just a receptacle for their viewpoint without actually having a unique viewpoint but in of his own. in the terms of the story, though, that just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Everything in this movie comes out of nowhere. The romance, the weird fondness, Adam Scott's fascination with large old women. Like... He has, he has a... That was maybe the best scene, Well, the scene that I heard you really laugh at was... The woman is trying to leave the room, and Adam Scott stays in the doorway, yes, yes, so that she can just awkwardly squeeze so past him. Like I love that they Adam Scott was barely in this movie, but they gave him this weird creeper. He did a lot with the screen time. Yeah, yeah. he did. That's and, and I think that's probably what they were hoping for by giving 
oh, Tom Hanks Jr., this boring vanilla characters, he'll make it come to life. The way Malkovich did with uh, Great Buck Howard, the way Adam Scott would do with, with that guy. With Steve Zahn. The with way Steve he brought Zahn, his yeah. character. And it's like Steve Zahn and Adam Scott, they have the charisma to be able to inject life into these very thin parts. But Colin Hanks in this particular role, it just laid there. Yeah. Yeah. It, there was no, no charisma. They also all, though, felt like they were in completely different movies. And that's true. There was a lot. There was a no settled tone in this movie. Yeah. It was so weird. And then poor Emily Blunt's just trying to do something. She's like, I mean, she's... That accent was so bad, though. That it's American not as accent. bad as Kara Knightley's and no, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. That was so disturbing. I don't even know how that happened. It, it broke my heart yeah. watching that movie because really? I like Kara Knightley a lot. And it's like, it's right. her voice is rebelling against her It was awful. Features. I know. I just wanted to give her a hug and like, just like, no, have a drink. Like, relax your throat. Just stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> With Emily Blunt... What what would you say the high point is in terms of Brits doing American accent? Would you say like Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Ooh, she's pretty good. Good um, choice. I mean, like Hugh Laurie on House week to week. Obviously, it's kind of the, the pinnacle of that. <laughs> Did, have, you've seen the trailer for Doctor Strange? Yes. A lot of people are just saying that Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent is the same as Hugh Laurie's, just like lowering your voice, making it raspier. Yeah. Yeah. But it works. Like it's it works. My my favorite version because it's it's terrible is Jude Law and I Heart Huckabees. Okay. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, in that one, he's <laughs> he's kind of like an artificial California boy, right? Yeah, and every time he says the the name Brad Stan, it it like he can't do it, and it's just and it like somehow it keeps coming up in in I Heart Huckabees, and it's just like every time it's different. And it's never right. It's always awful. And it's it's the greatest thing David O. Russell's ever done. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> I think the 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 moment from My Heart Huckabee's that really sticks out of my mind is the opening where Jason Schwartzman reads that poem to The Rock. No one and sits says, like this rock sits. You rock, rock. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> you rock, rock. Like, that's beautiful. I... I love you that. had you had more of that memorized than I do, so this movie does speak to you. On I it. really love I Heart So Emily Blunt, this was like <laughs> two years after Devil Wears Prada. This yes. is this is around the time when she had to turn down Black Widow in Iron Man Two because she was contractually obligated to appear in Gulliver's Travels. Oh. Sorry, Jack Black. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy we got Scarlett Johansson, but that's rough for Ooh. Emily Blunt. But eventually it led to us getting Edge of Tomorrow because if she were being amazing. Yeah. Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of people really like Sicario stick a lot. Stay tuned not, for uh, Edge of Tomorrow and, uh, to be in our eventual Tom Cruise podcast for yeah. Cruise Control. I think aside... Are you serious? Maybe. <laughs> aside from the accent... Hold I up, think, hold up. You can't be more excited about Cruise no, Control. No, I am so excited for Cruise Control. You have no idea. Oh my God, can I talk about Last Samurai with you forever? It's so bad. We have to talk about the Great Buck Howard right now. This is what happens uh, whenever on our podcast, whenever we have to talk about something I don't like, I just derail it completely, and Elliot keeps trying to bring it back. This yes. is hard, <laughs> guys. Okay. Uh, well, what I was saying about Emily Please. Blunt was I'm that sorry. accent aside, I think she is charming in the movie. She is a fairy tale creature, kind of. Yeah, she's not I a woman. Think, she's not a woman person. I think she setting aside clothes. setting aside oh, yeah. the scenes with Colin Hanks, I think when she's with John Malkovich, she's entertaining because whereas Colin Hanks kind of bends over backwards to appease yes. this guy, Emily Blunt just does not want to take any of his shit. She's a little blunt with him. Well said. 
Well said. She is just... She has an iron rod. And with Adam Scott, it's kind of similar. Adam mm-hmm. Scott, his energy is more... He's been doing this for so long. He's so that over nothing, it. Yeah, nothing John Malkovich does is... Nothing wows is, him. Yeah, nothing impresses him anymore. He's not surprised by anything. But with Emily Blunt... It's very like, why the fuck am I dealing with this guy? And she was dealing with him for three days. Yeah. Colin Hanks has no was... character. He's silly putty. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it's not like he's like this weird, like, submissive, int- you know, you know, introspective guy who's like, I, I just, I just, As I'm going to bend over backwards. You never even hear him say the cliche thing of like, this will make for a good story. No. Which yeah, he's never would. like gonna put this into his writing. It's actually right? Malkovich who says no it'll be life experience. Yeah, yeah, like he's... nothing. It's basically for Colin Hanks. His journey is to drop out of law school and then go on this this huge trip with this magician and then meet this girl who gets him the job. And supposedly he gets this job as a writer's assistant because he had Buck Howard's name on his resume. Yeah, and that was just because the is it the showrunner really likes magic? Like I thought it was the star. Buck Howard, the of star? The show. Okay. Yeah. The star of the show Who really likes magic. He grew up watching Buck Howard. So it's very. It's not that Colin Hanks changed in a way through his no. No. service that made him impress these other people. It's just that he has this credit on his resume that. Regardless of how well he did on the job, he has that name on his resume, so he gets in the door. Yeah. And what is the show? Is it a sitcom? It looks like a sitcom. Starring Griffin Dunn. Okay, so just whatever the hell it is, it doesn't have any relevance to the job he just had or any of his life experience, whatever. So it's just kind of random. Right. Nothing's relevant to anything. So you have to imagine he's... He's decent at writing then, though, because it was just what got his foot in the door. But we did never he, saw did him write. Did he turn in a spec? I thought all that happened was How that would he get Emily hired? <laughs> How would he get hired if they didn't read his writing? Emily Blunt mentioned him to the star of the show, mm-hmm. and then the star brought him in for an interview, and then he was hired. I guess it's possible. And like, there's, there's no mention of his writing no. in the I entire think, movie. I think they're implying that a writer's assistant... Right, I guess he's not writing. But that's not how it works, obviously. So they're just going to... He's going to do on-the-job training, basically. How to form verbs and... How to string verbs and adjectives together. I think this means that all of us need to go find a washed-up musician to work for. Musician? Magician. Magician. Wow. Try and say it again. I'm so bored that I fell asleep halfway through my sentence. A washed-up magician. Okay, edit that and fix it. And you'll be good. Great. I'm going to do that. <laughs> uh, you guys have anything else to say about this movie? Is there anything we haven't covered or even just like little jokes you liked? or? Oh, I want to mention Patrick Fischler, who shows up in one scene. You recognized him as the guy from Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's great. He has a very... I love his quirky, energy. Yeah, nervous energy. He's been on Lost and uh, Mad Men and Angel. He In Angel, he was the guy at the... Uh, the bookstore? Was it the Lone Gunman bookstore? It wasn't Lone Gunman. Oh, it was the he, Magic Bullet. The Magic was, Bullet. Oh, fuck. He was Yeah, so this is season four. <laughs> so he was a conspiracy theory guy. On Mad Men, he was kind of a Jerry Lewis celebrity, and then in Lost, he was like a security guard. But whenever he pops up, he's been on other shows. I think he's a regular on Lost and 
uh, Once Upon a Time, or at least our recurring character. I know, he's, he's, he's been in stuff. And he's, he's cool. He just, uh, yeah, in Mulholland yeah. Drive, he gives this really tense monologue Ooh. about a dream he had. Yeah. That's one of the best scenes in that movie. But he just always, he, like, he has these beady eyes and this sweaty appearance. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, like, he's kind of one of those dynamite character actors that you can just pop in and he'll be the most memorable thing in the scene. Super yes. striking, yeah. Yeah, and here he's kind of, uh, he's the manager or the he's talent coordinator. The co-manager Of guy. a Vegas thing. Yeah. yeah. And so here he's just very complimentary of Buck and wants everything to go well. But it's very much... He's in the opening credits. But he just has this very minuscule part that doesn't add up to anything. But it's very nice to see him. Well, yeah. I mean, at that point in the movie, he injects something like, Oh, okay. So there's something to watch again. Because, uh, I mean, Malkovich is great, but you've seen his shit. Yeah. And it's the same shit for the rest of the movie. He doesn't change. Yeah. I think, for me, I didn't mind watching this. I thought it was kind of an amiable, easy watch. But it's definitely not something where... If I had to pause it to go get food or to go to an appointment or something, I would want to like race home and finish it. This, like, is, I'll not get a, to it. this is not a pressing priority. It's not movie. a pressing concern. It's kind of a lazy Saturday movie or a bored at work movie. But you're you're on. You're like okay with it. I'm okay with it. It's certainly not the worst movie you've ever seen. You too. It felt like you were pained by it. Yes. Uh, yeah. What, what? How do you feel? I. I just didn't like it. I mean, I'll never watch it again. I'll try not to think about it again, except for Adam Scott. I'll think of that again. I'm honestly at the point where this might... I've seen a lot of Tom Hanks films now. This might be my least favorite one I've seen. That's fair. You said that a couple times. I know, but... You keep keep going deeper. I keep seeing new movies. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's like, Like, okay, can't get worse than this. Because bottom of my list right now... Bottom of my list right now is uh, Cloud Atlas, which I know... You're wrong. You don't. You, You're 100% you disagree. Wrong. Yeah. But but the reason I don't like that movie isn't because it's bad. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. And yeah. it was ugh, that one hurt to watch. Uh, also at the bottom of the list is most people's least favorite, which is the the man with one red shoe because it's pretty terrible. But I think the lack of direction and purpose in this movie is like the main character is so boring. That I, I, f- I feel like I have to apologize for making you guys watch it. When, when it's something that's so... Like, I, I mean, we did a... I mean, like, his first movie, He Knows You're Alone. He's barely in it. <laughs> but it's, like, so bad it's good. It's fun to watch. There's something engaging with it. Yeah. This, there's nothing engaging on screen. I... Ugh. Yeah. Definitely very bottom. I don't know if it's the very, very bottom, but it's, it's, it's down there. Not a fan. Uh, the Great Buck Howard, not so great. So, Elvis, in the movie, there is at one point uh, a magazine article. I think it's Entertainment Weekly. There's a magazine article mm-hmm. about Buck Howard, and it's cleverly titled The Not-So-Great Buck Howard. So, if you were to write that article, what title would you give it? The Great Fuck This Howard. <laughs> well said. All right, everybody. The Great Buck Cowturd. <laughs> I think that's it for this week, uh, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Where where can what, tell them what, plug your shit? Go for it. All right. Every Thursday, I write an article called "Fear the Chick Flick" for Film Takeout, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at SammyJane six one three. I'm on Twitter at Escape E L L, 
And I do a podcast with this lady right here called Superhero Sampler. Every Friday. Yeah, where we just dive into random superhero shows, pick a random episode, check it out, see if it's any good. Elvis was recently featured on the show in our Darkwing Duck episode, which Samantha and Elvis loved and I was ambivalent towards. So it's interesting that in this threesome we dynamic, the opposite. yeah, it's like we can never totally like agree across the board. So, well, we all uh, like Civil War. Yes, yes, we do. 100%. Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, you have that, and then I also do an audio play called Beyond School. It is about a teenage girl who battles evil aliens. All right, and uh, if you want to follow the show, at Tom Hanks Pod on Twitter, email us, TomHanksPod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me at Elvis Kunesh. And uh, next week we're talking about... Charlie Wilson's War. Until then... Chicken Run. Until Sorry. then... Until then, stop it! (laughs) Thanks for listening! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Tom Hanks, we fell in love with you, Tom Hanks, just like so many do deeply, because you made us smile, and you're great on screen style, so that's why we give thanks, cause you've got a friend in Tom Hanks. American All right, fine. You can do your Emily Blunt. Go for it. Hi, Elvis. How's it going? I'm really excited. Are you a writer? <laughs> if you like pain, try wearing a cool set. <laughs> Got enough I can hear you, buddy. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. Um, don't talk that cool. Ooh, okay, I got it. Um, Oh, John Bennett, I have both pride and prejudice.